Today we're continuing our journey through the book of Mark and we're reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Once more, Jesus entered Capernaum and in time people found out that he was home. So many people gathered around that there was no longer any room, not even by the door. And he began speaking the word to them. Men came to Jesus bearing a paralytic, lifted by four of them. And because they couldn't bring him before Jesus on account of the crowd, they uncovered a spot on the roof above Jesus. After digging a hole through the roof, they began lowering the mat on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw the faith of these men, he said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Now there were some scribes present, sitting back and arguing in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Jesus, having understood immediately in his spirit that they were arguing like this amongst themselves, said to them, Why are you arguing about this in your hearts? What is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins upon earth, Jesus said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat and go home. He got up and immediately he took his mat and walked out before them all. They were all amazed and began glorifying God, saying, we have never seen things like this. Tim and Simone. <clears throat> well, it's a privilege to open up God's word and this uh, part of Mark is so filled, it's very rich. Let's pray that God will speak to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that these words are not the words of men, but they're the words of uh, the living God, the work of your Holy Spirit uh, through men. We thank you, Lord, for your truth. May it shape and fashion who we are, both as individuals and as a church. Please, this morning, speak into our lives so that we will embrace your priorities for our ministry in the world and amongst each other. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we gather this morning in one way or the other, acknowledging that beyond what we see, there is a spiritual realm. Uh, we are more than our senses. We worship a God and pray to a God that we cannot see. But when we step away from our gatherings and re-engage with the world, Sunday after Sunday, life group after life group, uh, daily devotion after daily devotion, do we still carry with us the mindset that we are living in a world that is spiritual, not just physical. Does secularism and its godless mantra hold court and shape how we view our world? Are we mindful of the spiritual realm, both the spirit and Satan? Recalling what Paul says, that we do not war against flesh and blood, but against the powers. 
It's interesting when I conduct Christianity Explored courses and you get to the part where Jesus is casting out demons and you're speaking about the son who's come down from heaven working in a world where there are spiritual evil forces at work that the people who are there exploring faith often struggle at that point because they don't see themselves by and large as living in a world where spirituality engages with them. How different when you travel overseas. In the course of time, God has given me the privilege of working a couple of times in Indonesia and once in Thailand. When in Jakarta, it was obvious that spirituality was everywhere. Um, Every um, hotel room has in the corner a little arrow that points you to Mecca so that you know where to face if you're a Muslim and you're going to pray and lay your mat down. And then every morning, early, early morning when the dawn rises, there's the call to prayer and that is followed by four more calls to prayer throughout the day. It's very hard to live in Jakarta and not think there's a spiritual realm. At least many people believe there is. And then in Thailand, um, on just about every corner as I walk to the streets of Bangkok, there are little places where you can see people offering fruit and prayers to what to me look like the most grotesque and evil-looking idols. You cannot live in that part of the world and ignore that there is a spiritual realm. It's in your face. And as we saw last week, the world that Jesus comes into is one where spiritual, the unseen, is at work. We see the Son who comes We see heaven opened and the Father speaking and the Spirit descending like a dove. Uh, We see Jesus speaking a message that addresses the spiritual needs of people. That the time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent for the forgiveness of sins and believe the gospel. Jesus has driven out after the Spirit has descended upon him, to engage with Satan in a battle. So it is Jesus comes into a world where spirituality is part and parcel of life. But in our secular society, one of Satan's cleverest strategies has been to convince people, or the majority, that he doesn't exist except in Hollywood horror movies. Yet his dark and destructive artwork is to be found everywhere on our city and suburban landscapes. It's there when you see the damage to our moral compass in terms of abortions for inconvenient pregnancies, the push for assisted suicide, the redefinition of marriage, sex seen as for pleasure, not intimacy in a lifelong relationship our Australian obsession with gambling that causes so much heartache and grief and from which our government sadly gains so um, so much income. We see marriage and families breaking down all over the place. Satan's diabolical artistry is also evidenced in the mistaken teaching of false religions and philosophical belief systems. It may not be politically correct to say this, But the word of God is crystal clear that behind all faiths and worldviews other than biblical Christianity, 
there lies the father of lies, Satan. And two of the biggest lies are that God is dead and God is reached by trying to please him through religious effort or through good works. We have to earn God's right. My friends, the world is damaged and you and I will and do experience the collateral damage. And the one who instigated this brokenness, the serpent of Genesis 1, is still on duty. Satan persuades people to swallow the lie that our selfish choices won't lead to death and the destruction of human society. This is the spiritually influenced world which Jesus engaged and called his disciples to also engage to become, as we saw last week and were challenged about, to become fishers of people, caught up in witnessing, sharing the good news. But how are we to do this? The task seems so overwhelming. We are outnumbered by those who don't believe the gospel. What ought to be our priorities to be most effective? Well, as we noted last week, Jesus is the go-to person. He'll show us how to prioritise as we engage this spiritual, demonic minefield of challenges and distractions. Now, while we will focus on Mark 2, 1 to 12, um, substantially a little later in the sermon, it's important to place this story that was read to us in the context of Mark 1 um, and 21 and following. The first priority, though, is the ministry of the word. No surprises there, I guess. From last week, we note this is how Jesus began his ministry. Jesus went into Galilee, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus, like his cousin John the Baptist, surfaces initially as a preacher. He has a ministry of the word. So it's no surprise that this is how Mark continues to portray Jesus. In verse 21, immediately after calling the disciples to himself, we're told that he goes into a synagogue in Capernaum. And as he went into the synagogue, he began teaching on the Sabbath. But it wasn't smooth sailing. As the narrative reveals very quickly, There was a man in that synagogue with an unclean spirit. He began to shout, have you come to destroy us? Now it's pretty hard to preach when the congregation starts yelling out at you. Please don't start this practice. (laughs) And then again, Jesus again wants to have a preaching ministry, but he finds himself surrounded with people wanting healing in 29 and following. People's request for healing now threatens to overwhelm the compassionate Lord so that spiritual needs slide down the food chain. Satan may have been defeated in the wilderness, but he wasn't done with yet. He won't go quietly. He'll seek to deflect and distract Jesus from preaching and teaching about the powerful kingdom of God and the need for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He will do this by thrusting broken world, broken people into his path. So he has no time to preach. He just does the immediate ministry. 
How will Jesus stay the course? Well, Mark cleverly, through the power of the Spirit, reveals how Jesus stays on track and what is his clear priority in sentences 35 to 39. Early in the next morning, while it was still very dark, Jesus arose and travelled to a deserted place and there began praying. Simon and his companions searched intently for Jesus and when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he, Jesus, said to them, let's move on to somewhere else, to the neighbouring cities, so that I may preach to them as well. It is for this reason that I have come. And so he went preaching in their synagogues throughout the whole of Galilee and casting out demons. After what was most likely a long Saturday evening of compassion ministries described for us in verses 32 to 34, Jesus arises on the Sunday when it's still very dark and finds a quiet place to pray with the Father. However, he's soon located by his four fishing-for-people apprentices who were clearly surprised by Jesus' early morning departure. Everyone is looking for you. <laughs> no surprises what they're looking for. They're hoping that doctor's surgery is open again. And we happen to know that one man, a paralytic, doesn't get there in time to be healed because we'll be returning to his story when Jesus comes back to Capernaum. Listen again to Jesus' reply. Let's move on to somewhere else, to the neighbouring cities, so that I may preach to them as well. It is for this reason that I have come. This reply clearly proceeds from his conversation with his Father in heaven, where he was able to redirect and reorientate himself to the path that the Lord had want, the Father wanted him to follow. Reflect, though, on the implication of Jesus' words. Jesus turns his back on sick people in Capernaum. They'd heard him preach. They'd seen his power to deal and to heal and to cast out demons. The kingdom of God had drawn near. They had enough information to make a response, to repent and believe the gospel. There were other villages, other cities where the gospel needed to be preached. But no sooner does Jesus set again off on mission, immediately Mark records an encounter with a leper who Jesus compassionately heals. See the cleverness of the text? Jesus turns it back on sick people in Capernaum. Do you think he doesn't care anymore? He bumps into a leper on the road and he heals him. He's still the compassionate Lord. It's just that he has priorities. He has an agenda from the Father. So Jesus warns this leper when he's healed him to remove himself and to go to Jerusalem to receive his certificate of cleansing that could only be issued in Jerusalem in the temple, 160 kilometres away. Can't interrupt the ministry when you're that far away. But the guy doesn't listen. And he's just overflowed with joy and we understand. And he tells everyone about it. And what are we told? We're told this. Because of Mr. Blabbermouth, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. What did he say he just wanted to do? Go to other towns to preach. But he stayed outside in lonely places. Who can't you take to lonely places? Sick people. 
but the healthy can go and hear the gospel. So he goes to the lonely places where he could preach unhindered. Now the event in Mark 2, 1 to 12 immediately follows from this sequence and it throws wonderful light on the relationship between healing and preaching. Jesus, it appears, has managed to sneak back into Capernaum but it isn't long before the crowds are knocking down the door to see him and the people are packed into the house. But being in the house, Jesus stuck to his number one priority. He preached the word to them. But there were five men who weren't going to miss out this time. They quickly climbed the outside staircase of this flat roof, a flat roof that is made up of palm leaves and mud, and they begin the process of pulling the ceiling apart. Picture the scene. Jesus is downstairs. He's preaching. We know what he's preaching. We've been told from Mark 1, 14 to 15. He's preaching about the fact the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Light starts to appear as mud and leaves fall down. Everyone starts to move back to make room. Ultimately, when the hole is big enough and it's a pretty big hole when you can lower a man on a mat down through it you can't keep preaching can you when the roof caves in we won't try that here but it wouldn't work we have this happen in churches when someone gets sick in church and you have to call the ambulance and everything goes on hold for a while until that's been dealt with. That's appropriate, compassionate ministry. But see what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Jesus uses the man, and we may not like this idea, but he uses the man as a visual aid. There is no doubt why these men brought this man for healing. But what does Jesus say? So he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus gives priority to the man's spiritual need, not his immediate and presenting need. One can imagine the four mates saying, no, 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 you've got, that's not why we brought him. Jesus' declaration of pardon leads to opposition from the local scribes, the local teachers of the Jewish law. They don't say anything out aloud, but Jesus knows what they're thinking. They know that only God can forgive sin. Therefore, Jesus is out of order. He's a blasphemer. Jesus, with clear logic and great compassion, shows them he has authority to forgive sins. Now, saying to someone, your sins are forgiven, is pretty easy from a human point of view, isn't it? Because you don't know whether it's happened or not. But to say to someone who's been on a mat for a long time with atrophied muscles, get up and walk, well, you know whether you're effective or not, immediately, or very embarrassed. The Pharisees and scribes believed that there was no healing without their birth first being forgiveness. And Jesus embraces their philosophy to prove his point. 
he does the more difficult thing first, forgive sins, but then he does the easier thing from a divine point of view by healing to show that he can do the harder thing. Jesus does a creation miracle. Not only was the man's paralysis healed, his atrophied muscles were restored, recreated so that he could walk away. The healing reinforced the preaching and the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. So we see Jesus' number one priority in his ministry was to teach and preach the word, the gospel of God. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. My friends, is this our number one priority here at Fig Tree Anglican? Is that our priority in our personal lives? To be fishers of people as we saw last week. If someone is taken seriously ill, we act promptly. We do what is needed to get them looked after. But we may know that these same people are spiritually lost and yet we have no urgency to share the good news of Jesus with them. Have we even stopped praying for some lost people? And yet if they were taken ill, we'd be there on, on the job? When you visit and bring comfort to the ill, they love you for it. But it's been my experience in ministry when I want to visit people and speak into their lives the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's often pushback. And I may even be seen as being rude and pushy. My Christian family, though, we have to move from simply doing band-aid ministries as they don't address the real problem. If a child has been bitten by a funnel-web spider, the parents don't quickly take the child inside, wash the wound, give it a kiss and put a bluey band-aid on it and say, it'll all be okay now. We know that there's a poison inside that needs to be an antidote. It needs to be treated. Band-Aid ministry won't cut it. And it's the same in the spiritual realm. The world in which we actually live is a spiritual world where people are spiritually lost. They are dying without Christ. They have a poison that needs an antidote. And the antidote is the gospel of Christ Jesus. It's the only way they can be saved. People need heart surgery, not band-aids. And it's the gospel that brings the heart surgery, the transformation. So the first priority of Jesus, the ministry of the word. The second, though, is a ministry of compassion. We can't avoid it. It's there in the text. This compassion ministry is not a distant second, but rather, as we've seen in Mark 2, 1 to 12, it was compassion was integral to preaching. We saw how Jesus used the paralytic as a visual aid for his preaching of a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But he then went on to heal him of his severe physical incapacity. It was preaching with compassion. Now, it's clear from Mark's narrative that healings, as we noted, could be distractions. But rightly understood, the healings are a foreshadowing of a, of a foretaste of life in the future kingdom. 
Um, I don't know whether you've ever gone to Costco in Sydney. There's massive big stores. Uh, I encourage you to always go about morning tea time through lunch. You don't have to buy any lunch. You can just taste everything. Now, the idea of you tasting stuff is that if you really like it, you'll have to buy something. Now, of course, at Costco, you can't just buy one can. You've got to buy a slab. But that's the cost. Jesus, in the miracles, is giving us a foretaste of the kingdom. He's saying there is a kingdom where there'll be no suffering and no pain and no heartache anymore. So that we might believe the gospel and be part of that kingdom ultimately. Not everyone gets healed in Jesus' time. But the king of the kingdom demonstrated what life in the eternal kingdom will be like. Perfect. Now you may be thinking, well, we can't pull off even the occasional miracle of compassion uh, that Jesus performed. Jesus' miracles were also a pointer, of course, to his divine identity. And we're obviously not divine. And if any of you think you are, talk to your family. They'll quickly straighten you out. But while we cannot reproduce miracles at will as Jesus could, we can create communities of compassion. A fellowship, a church, a life group where people with broken world experiences find a community which listens, which cares, which accepts people without qualification. A community which is generous and giving till it hurts. A non-judgmental fellowship. A non-clicky church that looks out for the new and the unfamiliar so they might become part of the family and feel accepted and loved. A community like that will create an environment which enhances the ministry of the word. People will listen because they want what this loving community possesses and experiences Sunday by Sunday in its life together. They will see that the gospel of Christ makes a difference. They will notice the gospel actually works. It transforms sinners into servants. In fact, rather than seeing the two priorities here and struggling to give correct weight to each preaching and compassion ministries, a struggle the church has had throughout its history, if we watch Jesus, we see there really is one major priority. It's preaching with compassion. But there's one other thing that surfaced during this text, which we need to just briefly comment on, and that is the priority of not being distracted from the course. There are different ways of looking at things, aren't there? For example, take this little ditty. Two men look out from the same bars. One sees the mud, the other the stars. How do you and I look at the world? How do we look at the people we know and encounter in daily life? Do we see them as Aussies who may have their ups and downs? Or do we see them as people who are made in the image of God? and who may be out of kilter with him and need to relate to him? How do we determine our life priorities and our fig tree Anglican ministry priorities? 
Are we people who took look horizontally only or vertically? Is our default to look at the world like the prevailing culture or do we look at the world from God's perspective? In witnessing, are we dictated to by our fear of people or fear of opposition rather than our fear of God? Remember, Jesus wasn't distracted by the fact the roof of the house he was preaching in suddenly had an unplanned skylight. It didn't, it didn't miss a beat. He kept on preaching the gospel by using the man as a visual aid. He wasn't distracted by the religious bullies who criticised him under their breath. The experts of the Bible, he wasn't threatened, he wasn't distracted by their criticism. Does Jesus give us any clues as to how to remain focused on God's agenda for him? Earlier in the story, we noted that he went apart when people were pushing him for a popular, powerful ministry of healing, and that only. He took time out. And I want to invite you to say these words again, a way of reinforcing our own minds about how we stay the course. Let's read these words on the screen together. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Where he prayed. How do we stay the course and not be distracted? It's about abiding in prayer and there being aligned with God's priorities and as it turns out, Jesus' priorities. It's holding a position of dependence a Father God focus. Well, it's time to bring my reflections on this section of Mark to a close. We've been, I hope, caused to ask ourselves, are we really committed to the priorities of Jesus or have we been distracted by our own and society's agendas? It's clear that while ever Satan is about, there'll always be distractions and things that would deflect us from God's gospel priorities in ministry. God has shown us through this text that healing is the preaching the world wants, but preaching is the healing the world needs. But we've also observed that Jesus brings these two together in his practice of ministry, and he is our model. Preaching with compassion is Jesus' priority. A ministry of the word which addresses the eternal needs of people without ignoring the immediate needs. Indeed, as we've seen with Jesus, addressing the immediate needs sometimes, in fact, creates opportunities for great gospel ministry as long as we don't get distracted. And if you and I, if we here at Fig Tree Anglican Church and even in our smaller fellowships of life groups will embrace these priorities for gospel ministry, if we preach the gospel forgiveness in Messiah Jesus from a community exercising compassion, I've little doubt we'll see boys and girls, teenagers, young adults, mums and dads, and seniors coming to faith in God. And people will join with the crowds of Capernaum, praising God and saying, we have never seen anything like this. 
they will see a church that proclaims the love and compassion of Christ and they will see a church that loves each other in the midst of our brokenness. And they will say, we have never seen anything like this.